0: Welcome everyone to Trudging It, a podcast sharing experience, strength, and hope on the journey to and in recovery. Today is our very first episode, welcoming newcomers to SA. And so in this first episode of our Women's Welcome Packet series, we're going to look at what does it mean to be a sexaholic? I mean, how do I actually know I'm a sexaholic? You know, it's very interesting because The first time that I went to an essay meeting, well, let me pause there for a moment and go back before this very first meeting and essay, whenever I would open up or have the courage to speak about what was going on with me with acting out or lusting, the response that I got was something to the effect of, I don't understand. I can't relate. I don't have the experiences that you have. And that feeling left me very much uncertain about my future, if there was even hope. And why was I the only one that had this problem? Am I just that bad? Do I just want to be this way? Deep down, I don't want to get better. The great news is, is that was not the case at all. Because when I attended this meeting, When I heard that lady read the problem, she was telling my story. Her story and my story were the same story. They understood me. They get me. I am not alone. I am not this terrible, horrible person that just doesn't want to stop. I am somebody who has a problem. This was home for me. And so that wasn't where it ended. They also read the solution. And because they related to me at the level of the problem, which no one else had ever done before in my life, I trusted what they were telling me in the solution. And the solution was wonderful news. It was telling me that there's hope. There is a solution. There is a path to recovery that works. It worked for them and it works for countless others. And so I had no idea that when I was coming to that first essay meeting that I was going to encounter a new life for me. And so that was my first experience with the problem and the solution. The other way that I was uh, qualified in which I totally identified with what was being shared uh, was when I was taken through The threefold illness, that is explained in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book. And the way this threefold illness works is this way. It says that I have a physical allergy, a mental obsession, and a spiritual malady. And I'll explain. Let's start with the first one, the physical allergy. The way in which the physical allergy works is this way. Something happens to me when I take my very first lust drink. When I act out, what happens is my body has an allergic reaction. It's very different if I have an allergy to, let's say, berries or peanuts, where if I eat those, uh, my body will react to them by having a rash or or swelling or difficulty breathing. This is a little different When I take my very first lust drink, my body has an allergic reaction in which this thing called the phenomenon of craving kicks in. And what the phenomenon of craving means is that I get an insatiable hunger for more. And the more that I drink lust, act out, the deeper and the wider this hunger spreads, and it has to have even greater drinks. And that's what the phenomenon of craving does for me when I take my first drink. I cannot control it, how much it has to consume. I don't know where it's gonna take me or how long it's gonna last. Well, let's say I try to control this because it would be reasonable and a good thing for me to take care of myself and say, okay, obviously I have a problem here. Uh, What I need to do is I need to control this. And so if I have, Uh, a lust drink, if I choose to act out, what I just need to do is watch myself. I need to limit myself. Let's say I'm only going to act out once a week or maybe once a month. And so now there are people, normal people out there who can say, you know, I'm just gonna only act out once a month, and they will truly only act out once a month, and they're fine. They can continue with their regular, normal lives. But for me, when I try to set a limit and say I'm only gonna do this once a week or once a month, once I take that first drink, no matter what plan I have, the phenomenon of craving begins, I automatically have an insatiable demand need for more and I keep consuming which increases that craving and I cannot stop nor guarantee how much or how long I consume or act out in lust. That is how the physical allergy works in me and obviously its ultimate goal is to lead me to my death and my destruction and anybody else it can get its hands on that's how dangerous and that's how serious the physical allergy is. I'll give an example of how the physical allergy worked in my life. What would happen is I would be getting ready to go to an event and I really and truly profoundly don't want to act out. I really don't. And so I am going to try with all my might not to do anything or seek any opportunities to act out in any way. Now it can be very overt ways of acting out. It can be very subtle ways of acting out. And it, it doesn't matter. And and acting out can be manipulating the situation, so I'm being lusted after, or I'm just maybe making uh, full-on propositions to people. It doesn't matter what it is. What matters is I don't want to do that, which I always do when I go to events. And so as I'm preparing myself, and this has happened so many times for me, I'm getting ready. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to focus on why I'm there. I. This is what I'm going. We're going to get in. I'm going to get out and it's going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And I would go there. And as soon as I got there, the moment I saw that opportunity to act out in one form or another, very over the top, overt acting out or very covert, subtle, uh, hidden acting out, I started to do that. And once I started it, that whole evening centered around continuing to get more and more hits. My whole night was focused on that. That's what the physical allergy does for me. And when I go home, I say to myself, what the heck just happened to me? I wasn't going to do that. I had a plan. What is wrong with me? That's the physical allergy. Okay. Well, we'll hold on here. That that sounds pretty terrible. I'm, I'm not going to lie, but, but I think there's a a solution here. I I don't think it's as terrible as all that LW. There is a solution here. I I have an idea. We got this. If the problem is once I take that first drink of lust in whatever form that is, and I can't stop once I start, okay, all I have to do is never, ever, ever. Ever take the first drink because if I don't take the first drink, I won't experience the phenomenon of craving and I won't be able to start. And who knows what will happen to me if I take that first drink? Problem solved. Got it. Thank you so much. I don't need anything else to do. I don't need any more help. I'm fine. I can take it from here. Well, actually, there's the second part of this disease that makes not starting. Impossible, and that is the mental obsession. And what the mental obsession does to me is that it's constantly using my own intellect, my own reasoning against me to convince me, to bug me, to nag me over and over and over again, that I need to go back out, that I'm taking care of myself, that I got this. I can handle this. I'm fine. I can go back out. I can control this. I can manage this. And not only is it okay to do this, but I should do this and that I'm taking great care of myself by doing this. That's what the mental obsession does. And what I try to do to counter that is I try to convince myself with sound, solid, good reasoning, reminding myself over and over again, why I should never ever take that first drink because after all this information now that I have about the, my physical allergy and the phenomenon of craving, this is wonderful because now I got it. I can remind myself over and over again. I can remind myself of all the horrible things that I do when I'm in this addiction. And so that's gonna convince me never to go back out again. Well, here's the problem, is that my own mind will be used against me. It will counter every thought that I have, every good argument and overwhelm any arguments that I have to to the contrary, that I need to go back out. And so there is nothing I can do to protect myself against that first drink because the moment and the time will come where I won't be on my A game and that reasoning will kick in and I won't have any defense and I will go have that first less drink and that will trigger the phenomenon of craving and then that path is ever set before me and who knows what will happen to me. And that's what the mental obsession is, but there's two more components to this mental obsession. One of it is common for any addiction, and that's called the strange mental blank spot. But the second component is very unique for the sexaholic. Let's start with the first component, which is the strange mental blank spot. And how it works is this, even if my mind is not convincing me, which eventually it will, but let's say it's not, it's not convincing me to go back out, but I'm, I'm not struggling. I'm not in any pain. I'm not, you know, wrestling with wanting to act out or or thoughts of acting out. I am going about my day, minding my own business perfectly fine. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, I come to my senses and I realize that I have been acting out lusting for the past one to two hours. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. That is a scary experience. And that's when I say, what the heck just happened? I thought I had this under control. I was fine. I wasn't even thinking about it. But that's what happens when I'm a real sexaholic, is that I have that strange mental blank spot and out of nowhere, I'm already acting out and I don't even know it. And that brings us to the third component of the mental obsession, which is very unique for a sexaholic. And I think it's just my experience that this is what makes this one of the most dark and sinisters and most difficult addiction to overcome. And that is that my brain is my own drugs dealer, my own drug producer. I can get high and produce my own drug just by thinking. This is very important. An alcoholic, a drug addict can fantasize about taking that first sip of alcohol, taking that first shot of heroin, and they will never, ever get drunk or high. But all I have to do is have one lust thought, a fantasy, a picture. And I already start producing the dopamine in my brain, and I am high as a kite. And I don't even know it because I didn't understand that I was already drunk, even when I haven't taken that first lust hit, at least that lust hit that I'm aware of. So, what I found out was that when I got really clean and off of all the subtle ways in which I get drunk internally, I didn't know that I could be foggy or rather I didn't know that for my whole life since I was three years old, my brain was foggy and stoned and high my whole life. And the reason why I know that was because when I finally got a clear mind, I could tell the difference. I had never felt that before. What is this? My brain feels sharp, ready to go never felt that before. Well, that's because I've had a foggy brain my whole life. I've been high my whole life since uh, I've been in this addiction. Okay, so now I know that there's nothing I can do, not only against that first drink, but against that first thought. But there's one more component to this disease that is fueling and driving the whole thing. And that is The reason why my mind is obsessing, which I'm absolutely powerless over, and the reason why I take that first lust drink, which I'm powerless over, and that triggers the phenomenon of craving, which I'm powerless over, is because I have a spiritual malady. And the spiritual malady is that part of me which no amount of trying to implement control with my physical acting out is going to help no amount, no amount of therapy trying to change my psychological thinking ever taps into the spiritual. It's a different component and it's overlooked in addiction. Or many times in my case, uh, for example, where I focus so much on the spiritual component because I, I had help and guiding me on the spiritual component of addiction, I didn't have enough help on the physical and the mental uh, help of it that I could not get into recovery. So if I'm missing one of these three components, that's not going to work without understanding all three, and especially the root and the heart of this problem is the spiritual malady, because I am in excruciating spiritual pain all the time, and I don't even know what it is or why I feel this way. And so, the way the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous describes it is that we were restless irritable and discontent. The white book describes it as feeling inadequate, unworthy, alone and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outside of others. And so this feeling of spiritual pain is driving my mental obsession to try to come with the strong enough solution that's going to numb me out so I don't feel pain and that's gonna drive me to take that first drink and trigger the phenomenon of craving. And so the spiritual malady can be identified is is this when I'm not drinking, you know, i.e. acting out or lusting, am I typically feeling irritable, restless, discontent, prey to misery and depression? Am I angry? Am I fearful? For me, I would have multiple shame and fear attacks, paranoia attacks. It was so painful for me. The other way that I know that I have the spiritual malady, and it's mentioned in the big book, is that suicidal thinking and tendencies can come into play here. And three of them are described, I believe it starts on page six of the big book, and it says that the first uh, form of suicidal thinking is, well, should I kill myself today? Well, no, not today. The second part is suicidal thinking, which was definitely something that I did, which was coming up with a plan. The third one, which I've also experienced, it's the more severe form of suicidal, uh, tendency is my body is trying to force myself to do harm to myself. And I'm actually having to exert some type of force to stop myself from hurting myself. That's the spiritual malady. And if that is not addressed... This does not work. And so that is why there, there was never, ever going to be any way by my own power to stop this except one. And that's the great news of Sexaholics Anonymous is that there is a way out and a way that leads to freedom and recovery. And that's working uh, the 12 steps in Sexaholics Anonymous. It is such a beautiful place program that addresses all three components of this disease within working the 12 steps with a sponsor with the support of a fellowship being immersed and surrounded with people who get me who understand me who know my th- they know my thinking they know exactly how this disease works. I, My brain, my mental obsession is not going to be able uh, to trick them so that they can't see what my disease is up to. They're going to hold me accountable and they're going to walk me every step of the way to recovery, to sobriety, to that new way of life that every addict has a right to. Everybody has a right to know the truth and that there is great hope. And that hope, is a new life that Sexaholics Anonymous has given to so many people by working this program and knowing that we are here and we are here to help because that's what this program has done for us. If I identify with the threefold illness, if that is me, I have this problem and I need the solution that SA has to offer, we're going to walk you through the steps on getting set up, getting connected, getting a sponsor, and so that you and anyone can receive that same support, those same wonderful resources that helped us in the beginning. We will end by quoting a part from a vision for you in the AA Big Book.